0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Let's just kind of clear our palates, clear our heads. We're about to hear the Word of God, and I believe for some of you in particular, what what you're going to hear this morning has relevance for your life. And so I'm going to just ask you one more time, we pray a lot at this church, but let's go to God and ask Him now to invade our hearts and minds with what he wants to say. God, I believe you have a divine appointment in this room right now for some people who need desperately to hear these words of truth. And I pray, God, that as we hear your voice, you would raise up our hearts to obey you, to respond to you so that our lives would change and change for the better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, you uh, can flash the sermon slides up there. Uh, if you're new to our church, we're working our way slowly but surely through a series called 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible. And the reasoning behind this uh, very long sermon series, possibly the longest sermon series in church history, 100 sermons, and the reason for the rationale is, if you're walking with us as, as a part of our church for a couple years... Really, there are certain things from the Bible you should know, things that are true, things that will build up your faith and your knowledge of God. And so we've gone to great effort to isolate or identify 100 key teachings in the Bible that really should be under your belt if you've been walking with us for a while. Uh, We're on message number 19 out of 100, so we're pretty close to a fifth of the way through this series. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 3 and explore the calling of the prophet samuel the calling of the prophet samuel if you grew up in church and went to sunday school you probably recognize a story when you know samuel is a little boy sleeping in the temple and he hears a voice and he thinks it's his boss so he gets up in the middle of the night and his boss says "No, it ain't me just go back to bed and that happens a few times you know the story we're going to explore that now today is sunday isn't it and what does that mean you're going to go to bed tonight and what is tomorrow yeah that's right monday's coming Monday is coming, and tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or 7 or noon or whenever it is that you wake up on Monday morning, your week starts to another grinding a, a role here, and, and you get going with it. And I want to ask you something about Monday. Does Monday excite you? Are you glad you're going back to work tomorrow? And let me ask you maybe more of a philosophical question. Think about what you do for a living do you like what you do? Do you believe in it? Do you enjoy it? Are you looking forward to work? Does it feel like work or does it feel like what you are and what you do has a, a real significance to you? Here's a, a, another question yet. Does what you do have real meaning in the bigger picture of the world? And if what you do tomorrow at work is what you'll still be doing when you're 65 years old and when your life is coming to that that those retirement years, and you're no longer able to decide to grow up and become something, you've already finished doing it. When you reach the age of 65, if this is still what you're doing, are you going to be okay with that? Are you going to be okay with that? Now, if at all those questions made you uncomfortable, or you're a little bit ambivalent you know, about what you do for your career and all that, um, maybe you're a little jealous then, Of some of those people in the world around you who seem to have this unshakable clarity about what they do. You know those annoying people who they're like, what I do for a living? I was born to do this. I was put on earth for this purpose. I love my job and every day I can't believe they pay me for this. I kind of feel like that. I'll I'll be honest with you. So I'm one of the people who annoys you. Tough luck. Go into ministry. You know, it's a really exciting life for me, and I really do. It's hard to believe I make money doing this. Don't stop paying me, but I'm just saying it's, (laughs) it's really, really amazing. And maybe the idea that some people are out there who feel like what they do for a living is the whole reason they were put on the earth, like there's a convergence of their life's purpose and their vocation, and maybe that makes you a little jealous or envious. And the question is, what about you? Do you want that? Do you want a kind of clarity? And I'm not suggesting that you are your job. Please don't misunderstand me. We are much more than just our jobs, but frankly, we spend a good 40 to 60 to 80 to 100 hours of our lives in activities revolving around our careers. That's a pretty big chunk of what you will be doing with your earthly life. If there isn't some deep sense of energizing purpose, a deep satisfaction in what you're doing... I would call that something of an existential crisis and something that can't just be ignored and blown off year after year after year. And so I want to explore through the calling of Samuel, really, um, how does a person who follows Jesus come to understand what God has called them to? Now, the word calling in church world is a bit of a tricky thing, because normally when you think of the word calling, you think of vocational calling, like people who go into full-time ministry. And when you ask someone like me or Pastor Matt or Pastor Frank, tell me the story of your calling. You better fasten your seatbelts and get some coffee because you're going to hear at least a good one hour. Well, I always ask you, do you want the short version or the long version? Right? Because we have a defined story about our calling. But what about the rest of the church? That word calling is confusing because in the church, we've got this division between the clergy and the laity. And the amazing thing is even just from our neckwear, you could tell what category do you fit in? Which are you? Are you one of those people who's a minister or are you a non-minister? But that's not a very helpful distinction to make if you really think about it because I think it's true, it's a biblical truth that God who is sovereign has extended a calling to everyone who hears his voice and who loves him. A calling to live our lives on purpose and with a purpose. Does that make sense to you? And that means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning and you're just punching the clock and going to and from work without any sense of God's purpose or plan for you in that, if it's just to bring home a paycheck and you can't see beyond that to any greater purpose for your work, then God wants to say to you there is more that is possible out there than just punching the clock and earning a living. There is so much more. And through the calling of Samuel, we're going to explore how the person in the pews, the person wearing the necktie and not the, not the priest's collar, can come to discern what their purpose and calling is in life as God has given it to them. And the first thing I want to point out here, the first point I want to make is study your history. Study your history. This is actually a photo of, of my family. Um, I don't know if this laser pointer works, but there I am right there. That's my brother, Dr. Steve. That's my mom, and that's my dad, looking all like he's in the 70s. It's ridiculous. And, and that's just from a family gathering. Um, I don't know if you guys know one of the families that are kind of new to harvest, um, Eugene and Annie, but I think that's Annie right there, too. <laughs> Some of us grew up together. And uh, that's, that's a, a photo I, I throw out there because that's part of my personal history. That, that photo really... Wells up in me some nostalgic feelings and I'm sure you've got a little shoebox in your house somewhere filled with photos like that that depict your own history as The Prophet who anointed the first two kings of Israel The Prophet Samuel was one of Israel's most important figures in all their history So what's interesting to me is as first Samuel opens up the story of this great and prominent prophet begins with the story of his mother Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because his his story really doesn't begin with his birth, but with circumstances in the generation before him. And and so, if, if I could just quickly recap for you the story. Samuel's father, Elkanah, had two wives. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't recommend it at all. It causes lots and lots of problems, especially in the modern world. But here's the situation. It doesn't expressly state in the Bible who he married first, but here's what I believe happened. He married one of his wives, Hannah, for love. And in an age where arranged marriages were the norm, it was rare for two people to genuinely love one another, and so Elkanah married Hannah because he loved her. But after marrying her, he found out that she was not able to give him children and that weighed on his heart, not just because he wanted to have kids, but because in those days that meant that your property, your entire legacy wouldn't be handed down to anyone, it would be forfeited. And so it was of a pressing urgency that he should have a line of descent. And so he took another wife named Penina, most likely because, um, because she was able to bear children, and so he had two wives. But listen to this dysfunctional family situation. Here's Hannah, who is bitter because she can't have children, and there's this longing in her heart that she has no power to control. Everything in her as a woman screams, I want a baby, I need to feel what it is to bring a life into the world, and she can't make that happen. And on top of that, the other wife is tormenting her mercilessly. Nah, 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 and she, you know, she's rubbing her belly going, I can make babies and you can't, and it's just this wicked, merciless tormenting. I don't know why I'm talking into this thing. All right. <laughs> so I have this. So that's the one wife, Hannah, who has, she's barren, but she has the love of her husband. On the flip side, here's the other wife, Panina. Very unusual name. Nobody names, everyone names a kid Hannah. I've never met a Panina. But there's this Panina, and her, her anguish is that she can produce all kinds of babies. Her, her offspring will inherit this man's wealth, and yet she knows that she doesn't have the love of her husband. She is just a womb on legs, and she knows it. That is all she is to this man, and it torments her. And I think that jealousy, that envy, the, unlo- that the longing she has for a man's love that's never really returned to her drives her to be this wicked and vindictive, and she's tormenting Hannah. And so you can imagine the situation in which, into which Samuel is born. It's an extremely dysfunctional family situation. Are you with me? You got the picture so far. And it's in the midst of that. Look, look at what it says in the text. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed up her womb. Once a year, the whole family, Elkanah, would pack them up, they would get on a caravan of mules, and they would travel about 15 miles to the city of Shiloh where the, where, um, the temple was. And they would give this annual sacrifice called a peace offering where they would slaughter an animal, give some portions to the priest and then he would feed each member of the family some of that meat. And the whole purpose of the peace offering is to promote peace with God and peace with one another. It's supposed to be a very happy time of reconciliation but it was precisely at this service every year that Panina would especially torment Hannah. And she probably spiritualized her torture by saying, Where is God? He must not love you. You must have done something really wicked for your womb to dry up like this. And she was just laying into her. And yet, it turns out that in the midst of this torment, Elkanah was trying to reassure Hannah. And he would give her double portions of meat because she said, You don't have children, but I want you to have extra because I truly love you. Now, here's the funny thing, though, about the human heart. When it wants something deeply, it doesn't matter how many other things it has, the heart will not be consoled, it seems, until it gets what it most wants. And some of you understand that because that's your life right now, isn't it? There's something you long for which you can't control. You wait and wait and it doesn't come. And and people are pointing out annoyingly, right? They're saying to you, but you have everything else. You have this, you have that. And people would say, to Hannah, look, so what if you're barren? Your husband loves you the way that I wish my husband loved me. What are you complaining about? And Hannah would hear that and she's like, yeah, good point, you're right, I know. I shouldn't complain. But in her heart of hearts, that's the way our hearts work. I long for this and so nothing else can console me until I get this. I think Penina knew that. And so every time they went to this thing, Uh, She would just torture her. Her rival kept provoking her, and this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. I think that Penina sensed that fertility was the only edge she had on her rival wife. And so she began to, to really point that out, and Hannah eventually got so discouraged, she even lost her will to eat. Akana, her husband, trying to console her, would say, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And listen to this. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? This is the stupidity of men. The, the words that were meant to comfort his wife were like a dagger in her heart because what he's saying is choose. Either be happy with me or be happy with children. You're not going to have both. And her heart is saying, but I want both and I love the fact that you love me, but it's no replacement. For my longing to have children, do you understand that? And I know guys, we're fixers. We say stuff like what Alkana said, but don't don't say stuff like that. Okay, don't insert yourself in the situation like that. It's just not wise. And so the response of Hannah is in bitterness of soul. You'd think it would say, oh, she was so touched and she wrote him a little card. But no, in bitterness of soul, not only do I not have kids, my husband is an idiot and he's trying to help, but he's just not helping. And so in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. You know what? To her credit, Hannah knew where to take her pain. I don't think everybody always knows where to take their pain. We know how to have pain. We know how to express pain. But do you really know where to take it? A place where your pain has some outlet, some resource by which it can be addressed and healed. Hannah knew that no one on earth, not even her loving husband, could be the source of her healing. And so to her credit, she got on her knees and she went to God. But I love what it says, because this is not a, a falsely pious kind of prayer it wasn't oh lord you know that i'm really satisfied with only you but you know if you would just will it for me she wasn't saying that kind of prayer she was beating her chest in bitterness unmasked expression of what she's really feeling she's telling god how she feels and in that bitterness and total honesty she's pleading with god for one thing and one thing only give me a kid That's all I'm asking of you, God, and I'm pleading with you to give that to me because that is what this heart is yearning for. And she is not disguising the fact that that's what she really, really wants more than anything. She was praying so intensely for this that she was moving animatedly. It's praying in the spirit. Her mouth was moving, but no sound was coming out. And Eli, the high priest, sitting on a chair watching her, thought she was drunk, and he went up to her and said, excuse me, I think you had too much of the offering wine. You need to get out of here. You're embarrassing the church. And and so he was trying to excuse her and kick her out, and he realized she was praying so intensely, she appeared to be intoxicated. And listen, in the midst of her anguish, she was as bold as to do this. She made this vow, a bargain with God, a little if-then proposition to the God of the universe. She said this, she said, if you will give me a baby, I'll give him right back to you. I will, and this is a very curious phraseology, I will loan him to you for his entire life. Now first of all, I'm not so sure it's cool for a mom to like sign away her kid's life before he's even born in a private transaction she's having with God, but that's what happened is that she made this deal, God if you'll give me a boy, I won't even keep him. I'll be so thrilled that you answer this prayer that I'll turn around and give them right back to you. You know what else I think that says about her prayer? That at some point, this prayer was no longer about, I want a baby. It wasn't even about the child, was it? Because if it was just about the child, she would never give that baby up. If that was the longing of her heart, how could she ever utter the words, if you give me what I most long for, I'll just give it right back to you. That's ridiculous. At some point in her spiritual journey, Hannah's desire changed from, I want a baby, to, I just want to know, God, that you're really out there and you haven't forgotten me. I just want to know that you still hear my prayers and you really love me and you have real power. I just want to know that I'm not invisible. That's what she wanted. That's the only explanation for the bargain she makes with God. And the amazing thing is Eli hears that, he senses God is in it, and he blesses her, and she's renewed with hope. She eats and she goes home, knowing that before too long, she's going to be with child. And that's exactly what happens. Now why am I going to all this story about the prophet Samuel's mother story? Because think about this. His mother's entire life, was defined by one longing, to have a son. So that his arrival, his birth, was the resolution of every tension that was coiled up in this woman's heart like a spring. Everything she ever wanted from God, from life, from her husband, was tied up in the arrival of this one little baby boy. And I want you to think about that for a second. Do you think that that kind of backstory has any impact on the the outcome of Samuel's life? When you're born and you're like, here I am, minding my own business, and everyone's like, no, you don't understand. You're a special baby. You're the answer to your mama's prayers. You are everything. And she just holds you and cuddles you and kisses you, and she can't let go of you because you are everything to her. Do you think that has an effect on his life? Do you think that explains a few things about the kind of person he would become? Absolutely it does. Sometimes we try to understand our calling in a vacuum, as if we have no history, and my calling simply begins with, I'm an adult with a degree, what should I do for a living? What should my life be about now that I decided to know God? But do you realize that like Samuel, for most of us, our story begins before we were even born? Because we weren't born into nothing. We were born into a family, a real place with real people in space and time with a real history and real issues. And some of you are like, preach it, because your family has real issues, like Dr. Phil issues. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, Dr. Phil's not enough. You need someone even more professional. And so think about this, because if you're going to understand the better part of what God has planned for your life, It doesn't just begin with when you came on the scene, but there was a story that still affects you today that dates back to your parents and even their parents before them. Your personal history has more to do with your life today than you can possibly imagine. The promises your parents made to themselves and to God about your life are still affecting you. The blessings they prayed over you, the curses they incurred on you, through their sin which was never repented of. There are so many dynamics. Think about the choices you make, the prejudices you have, the bad habits, the good habits, the fact that some of you clip coupons and some of you waste your paycheck the week after you get it. Those things all trace back to your family of origin. And there is a story that is still writing itself and you have no idea what a product of that story you still are today. And that's why if you're trying to understand your calling, then like Samuel, you've got to kind of make sense of your present life by considering the heritage you came from. And if you've never done this in your adult life, can I just encourage you, if your parents are still alive on the earth, call them, drive out to them, fly over to where they are, and spend a good, relaxed one week together with them, interviewing them. Ask them some questions, like, before I was born, tell me about your lives. What kind of home was I born into? Were you happily married? Were you guys having trouble? Did you love the Lord before I was born? Did you ever make promises to God about me? What, what did I represent when I was born? Was I an unexpected accident, an inconvenience, or the longing finally met? What was I to you? If you could control my life, mom and dad, what would you have wanted my life to become? What should I be doing for a living if I obeyed you perfectly? And as you hear those things, it will start to come out that there is a story for you that began before you were born, and it still touches your life today. If you're a teenager or, or not yet an adult child and you're hearing my voice, make sure you begin talking to your parents at this early age because your family is going to control more of you than you'll ever admit We have a lot of pride, don't we? Like, whatever. My family, I'm better than my family. My family, I've gotten way past that. I've left them behind. I'm different than they were. Yeah, in some ways you are. But if you don't understand your past, you may never fully understand the shape and the calling to which God is drawing you forward. Are you with me? Here's another principle. Discern your times. Discern your times. You know, I've already said this once this morning, that none of us is born into a vacuum. It's not like you just show up in an empty snow globe and begin filling it with stuff you like. You are born into a concrete, defined world. There is a reality all around you over which you have no control when you come into the world. I mean, there are people, I, there were, there were people in human history born into an era where just diarrhea would kill you. Can you imagine that? And today in the United States of America, you're like... Just get some pectate and live, right? But there are people who were born where there was no there was no choices, there's no communication, no technology. You were born into the twenty-first century. You were born into the information age. You were born into a setting where you don't have to do what your father did for a living. You were born into an age when women have unprecedented freedoms and rights and it's still growing. You are born, uh, you're, you're born into a world where in this culture today there's more racial equality than has ever before been seen in the history of human race. You were born into a context of reality that if you don't wake up and look around you, you will never really understand your calling if it's explored in a cave of isolation and introspection. What I'm trying to say is you cannot understand your calling by retreating to a quiet place where it's just you and God Shot out the world and go, what should I be about? What should I do with my life? Because God says, hey, listen, you're not alone on the planet. If you want to make sense of what you're supposed to do, one of the first steps is to consider the times in which you live and the reality of the world I put you in because there's a lot of explanation and billboards posted for you already. Guidance is everywhere if you would but open your eyes and attend to God. I think we're too self-centered though and we expect that there is some tailor-made message from my life that adds value to my experience and existence but doesn't have anything to do with the world around me and that's simply not true. The world you live in will often help drive you under the hands of a sovereign God to understand what you're supposed to do with your whole life. When Samuel was born, this is a statement that God makes of the times in Israel. Now the sons of Eli, what this word? They were worthless men. Did you ever, did you ever meet worthless men in your life? Now, don't, don't point or jab anyone with your elbow. But Did you ever meet a worthless man? And the word worthless here is not like he didn't have money, but it's, it's translated elsewhere as wicked. These guys are just so bad, they're of no use to anybody. Everywhere they go, they make things taste worse, smell worse, feel worse. Have you ever met someone like that? It's like, if they just blipped out of existence, no one would miss them because they bring misery everywhere they go. These are not good men. They did not know the Lord. The problem is they weren't just driving taxis anonymously or something. They were the sons of the high priest of Israel and they enjoyed positions of great influence and authority in the temple worship. By birth, They were priests in God's temple. But they were using that authority and influence for very wicked and selfish gain. The way it worked with the peace offerings and other offerings was that people would bring animals and wheat and wine and stuff and they would sacrifice it to God and there was a protocol involved with this. For example, with a peace offering, you would take all the the best pieces of meat and you would burn them to the Lord with the fat on them. Now I know today in the health-conscious America that we live in, Fat is not a welcome thing, but there was a time in this world where fat was like the good stuff on the meat, where all the flavor was, you know what I'm mean? talking about? So when you got the fat, you're like, oh, I want the fat today, mommy, and our kids today are cutting the fat out and putting it to the side. The fat was the good stuff, and when you burnt it, it created a wonderful aroma, and God enjoyed that smell, evidently. He likes barbecue. That, that really encourages me as a man. Our God likes barbecue. And and so he's smelling that, and he likes it, so he wants the fat left on. But these guys, the wicked sons of Eli, would say, no, we also like the fat, and God's not going to miss it. So they would strong-arm the people who are worshiping. Hey, give us that meat right now. Don't waste it on the fire. Give it to us, and we'll eat it. And the people are like, that's not right. We're supposed to give it to God first. And these wicked priests would say, don't worry about it. Aren't we the priests, the sons of the high priest? Do as we say, or we'll curse you. And using their authority and influence, they, they abused their, their rights and their leadership role and they took for themselves what was never theirs to have. That's the story. And God saw this and he was exceedingly angry. To make matters even worse, it says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These are women, innocent young women who are helping run the church, if you will, and these guys were seducing them, using their authority, scaring, intimidating until these women would sleep with them. You know who these guys are? It's like a pastor who embezzles from the offering and has an affair with his secretary. That's the kind of spiritual leader we're talking about. And these are the main leaders in Israel, are these two wicked guys and an impotent old father who can barely see and can't even restrain his son's behavior. These are the three highest ranking religious officials in Israel at the time that Samuel was born. Do you think that has nothing to do with Samuel's story? It has everything to do with it. You see, you can't understand Samuel's story without looking around at his context and realizing he was born into a time where there was such great wickedness in the temple of God, where, where there was so little of God's presence. Look what it says here. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. Make no mistake, it doesn't say that religious activity went down. In fact, in that era, religious activity was going up. Temple worship was at a high, but you know what? For all the busy activity surrounding the church building, what it says was God was less and less present in any of it. That's a frightening statement if you think about it. The people were so busy doing church, and God was so busy blowing it off because it had so little to do with Him. Doesn't that just wake you up that it's possible to do all this and God doesn't come to the party? It was like a party that keeps going after the guest of honor leaves the building. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like God doesn't even have to be here. We're doing this for ourselves. That's exactly the spiritual state of affairs at the time that Samuel was born. Religion is up, but God's presence is down. You see, it's easy to think, that the reason Samuel ends up spending his life in God's service is because his mother made a promise to God, a bargain. And at the human level, I suppose you'd be right. Yes, she made a bargain and God honored it and she honored it and that's why Samuel is there. But that's not really the whole story, is it? The greatest explanation, the most accurate explanation for why Samuel is serving as the priest in Israel, as a prophet in Israel, is because he was born into a time where the state of God's people broke God's heart. Where he wanted to visit with his people, but his priests repelled his presence. And as a result, because there was so little honesty and integrity in worship, God avoided things, but he didn't want to leave it that way. He loved Israel. He wanted to restore his presence, and he needed to raise up a godly man who would do exactly what he was told, who would live his life uprightly and righteously in wicked times. And that's exactly what God raised Samuel up for. Samuel cannot make sense of his life simply by going, Mom, why did you promise me a way to God? Because that's not the only story. He will understand his calling by simply opening up his eyes and saying, somebody has to do something about this. Why not me? How can we ignore the times we live in and pretend that we're seeking out a calling from God that completely ignores the reality all around us? We live in a world that is defined and has pressing needs. And if you love Jesus and you belong to him, you are meant with your whole life to address the reality that you were born into. Let me let me just illustrate that with something a little more um, contemporary. I went on bestbuy.com yesterday, okay? And uh, I just looked up cordless phones. I don't really use cordless phones that much. It's been a while since I really focused on a landline, but I just was thinking, I wonder if they even sell these things anymore at Best Buy. Do you realize as I went to bestbuy.com, I found 147 different models of cordless phone available for purchase on one website now why am i bringing that up let me ask you a question you were born into a world where you can buy 147 different kinds of cordless outdated technology now knowing that one simple fact as you weigh your future options and think about what you should do with your life Do you suppose if you would yield your entire life to God, his most pressing, urgent call in your life would be, listen, we need number 148. I want you to design cordless phones. 147 is not enough options. The American people need one more choice, and that genius lives in you. Make it happen. Here's another way of saying it. Do you think another model of cordless phone is what the world of your life, your reality most desperately needs today. I'm not trying to poo-poo on engineers. If that's what you're called to do is to make phones, make good ones, all right? Just get out there and make good ones. But what I'm saying is as you look at the world around you, even one simple fact like that speaks volumes to what God, if He had His way in your life, unhindered, might do with you to respond to the world all around us. The reason some of you feel this angst about what you do for a living is because deep down in your heart, you know that other than providing food on the table for your family, your work makes almost no difference in the bigger picture of the world. You are just competing with another big company for for another sliver of market share in something that's already a flooded market, and you know that if this is the summary capping statement for your whole life, that this guy did this work for his or her whole life, that that's just not enough for you and somewhere in your soul you know it. No one else has to tell you that your own choices have indicted your own spirit, that you've given yourself to something less than truly significant and you, of all people, in those honest moments before God, sense it. I want to encourage you to think about what you're doing with your life in the light of the reality and the times in which we live. An era of unprecedented globalization, communication and world travel is so much easier. There are diseases ravaging the world that we can do something about if we just reallocate resources. There's injustice happening all around, and we don't need any more lawyers suing McDonald's because the coffee was too hot that I spilled like an idiot on my own lap. We need people who stand for justice, not for winning lawsuits. Do you think that has any bearing on how God who loves the world might maybe use your life if you gave Him permission to speak? What do you think? Do you think the world around us has anything to do with our calling? And let me give you one last principle. Take your next step. And I know that we are the church of next steps, but I think sometimes the most important step is just the very next one. The one that you know you're supposed to make that's been exceedingly hard to make. As they say, watch that first step. It's a doozy, right? It's a doozy. You know, one night Samuel is sleeping soundly as a young boy in the temple. Another great illustration by Heath. And he hears a voice. Now, when you're a young servant boy in the temple service, you hear a voice, you just respond. You don't go, I'll be there in a minute. You just get up. That's the way it works. And so he got up dutifully, and he went to the only person who ever calls him, his boss. And he said, what do you want, Eli? And Eli goes, "Why? Well, I didn't call you. Get back. Go to sleep. This happens three times in the middle of the night. And finally, Eli starts to discern something. He goes, oh, hold on, hold on. Maybe you're hearing a real voice, but it's not mine. It might be God. Now, Eli is a man with a lot of flaws. But to his credit, he gives little Samuel the one piece of advice that is the key that unlocks his calling. Here's what he says to Samuel. He says, go back to your quarters, but do this. The next time you hear a voice calling your name, here's what you do. You sit upright and you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do you have any idea how important that really is? That is the one key around which the entire story of Samuel's life hinges. It's the most important turning point because it establishes the relationship properly between him and God. I think the reason we sometimes don't hear from God is because we have the wrong relational uh, dynamics with God. You can't hear from God because you're trying to talk to him like you're his equal and you're just trying to shoot the breeze at Starbucks with the creator of the universe. The way we sometimes pray, there's no humility in it. It's like, God, come on, here's my life. You know, I just feel like I want to do this and I want to do that. What do you got for me? And we talk to God not in the position of servants speaking to their Lord, but as friends talking to their financial advisor. Do you understand the difference? When we come to God, the first and most important step is to presume and assume the right posture the right attitude between us and God, because if that matter is not settled up front, there won't be a meaningful dialogue. You will hear voices, but they will not be God's voice. Do you hear that? If you are not first oriented in your heart as the servant of God, please don't waste your time or anyone else's time presuming to seek out guidance. Guidance. And this is why some of you have been running in circles for a very long time because you play the game very well, very convincingly. I want guidance. Give me advice. I want guidance. What does the Lord want? But you know in your heart you're not a servant of God. You want to have your freedom and you still want to pretend that you care really deep down what God wants for your life. If you want to hear the voice of God, make it worth his time to speak. Begin just like Samuel did by saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Never with the attitude, What do you got for me? Let's talk. That humility made all the difference because suddenly God begins to speak to this little boy Samuel. And I want you to understand, he's a little kid still at this point. His mom is still bringing him the little robe every year. That's what it says in the text. And so this is not a grown young man. He's a little boy. And think about the heavy thing that God lays on him. Sometimes when you assume the servant's heart and the servant's posture, God will drop some heavy stuff down on you. He will give you the burdens of your generation and tell you that he is raising you up to do something far and vastly beyond anything you imagine you might accomplish for him. And so God says to Samuel, Listen, kid, here's what I want you to do. In the morning, when you smell the coffee brewing, wake up and go to the quarters of your boss, Eli, the high priest of Israel. And here's what I want you to say to him. Pronounce this awful word of judgment and doom. You tell Eli that I am mad about the state of affairs in Israel. I am disappointed with his performance as priest. I am angry as all get out at his two sons. And here's a sign that I am judging him and his whole family. There would never be an old man in his family line. They will always die young and his two sons will die on the same day and I will remove the blessing and authority from him forever. So can you handle that, little Samuel? Can you go tell your boss that that's what God says to him? I want you to think about it. Your first assignment is to curse your own boss. And it says here that there was a lot of anxiety in Samuel's heart. So, listen, Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. I really identify with what is written between the lines there. I don't think he slept a wink that night. And I I can definitely identify with that feeling. You're just laying awake, going, oh my goodness. And you're just turning stuff over and over in your head, and you dread what's coming when the sun rises. But you know what's amazing is that after all of that, because he had established himself rightly as God's servant, and not as God's partner, not as God's buddy, but as his servant, God spoke to him, and in, in trueness to that form, he obeyed God in his first assignment, as difficult as it was. I think this is God's mercy, that sometimes he doesn't let us incrementally grow into our calling, he kicks us over the edge, he goes, the first one is going to be a real big one, I want you to learn to trust me right off the bat. You know, recently our small group had a, um, had a pool party where at least some of the members actually got into the spirit and swam. And the ones who swam, I've talked about this before, they, some of them were trying to dip their toes. This pool is not a heated pool. It is frigidly cold. And some of them were trying to do this little pansy. Kind of, eh, 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 and so I needed to help them get adjusted to the temperature. So as a servant of God, that's what I did. I pushed them in. And sometimes that's the most merciful thing, is not to prolong the agony, but to realize sometimes just diving in gets your life moving faster and better than anything else you can imagine. Some of you are right there in your life. There is a step set in front of you that feels too big to take. And God says, you're not going to unlock your calling if you don't obey me on this very first assignment. It's a big one, it's a doozy, but if you can take your first step of obedient faith now, things will be unlocked that you would never imagine. You may not have all the answers, you may not have a house to live in in that city, you may not have any idea how you're going to put food on the table, but if you will obey me in this first step of faith, you'd be amazed how I'll meet you along the way. That first step of obedient faith is what leads to the next step, of obedient faith, which ultimately becomes a lifestyle and a calling of following your Lord Jesus Christ. I'll wrap up with this. Uh, yesterday, I had lunch with six other men, most of us well into midlife. Okay? And one of the things that we're doing is hearing each other's stories. And I was, you know, I knew most of these guys pretty well, but as I'm listening to the stories again, it occurred to me that none of us chose to be where we presently find ourselves. We ended up here. And a lot of us are surprised to be where we are. For example, most of the guys are not living in the city that they set out to live in. Some of them are still here in Chicago after saying to their spouse, only for a couple of years, and then we're leaving. And here they are 20 years later or whatever. Isn't that just the way life turns out? that sometimes things change. In fact, that's probably the most reliable thing that never changes, is that everything always changes. And that's why it's a mistake to, to tie calling to this idea of vocation, to what you do for a living. The, you know, because what you do for your job is likely to change, but the one enduring calling that never changes is to whom you belong. And that's why Samuel, God, is calling right the first time. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's the ultimate calling, is that I belong to this God. He can change the situation of my life a hundred times, but the one thing that has always remained the same is I know who calls, and I know who is being called. I hear my shepherd's voice. I hear him. And as these seven men, all of us at the table, all leaders in the church are speaking, speaking, That's the one thread that was woven throughout every story, is we couldn't have possibly controlled or predicted where we were, where we ended up, but along the way with every unexpected twist and turn on that winding road, you like that image? That's our life. And on every turn, we could hear God's voice and He gave us the grace to respond in faith. You can't get into your life if you sit still in paralysis and fear and doubt. You take that one step. It will lead to another. And in the process, you will find your life. You will find your calling. And what does it say as Samuel? Obey the Lord. Deliver the curse on Eli. And Eli said, <laughs> you know, I love this response. What are you going to do? <laughs> He's God. I guess I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, what else can you say? I love Eli's response. And then, that's the thing that breaks the dam. And look at what it says. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's exceedingly important because throughout Israel, everyone rolled their eyes when Hophni and, and, uh, and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were mentioned. Oh, the priests in Shiloh and everyone would go, yeah, right, the priests in Shiloh. No one believed that God was moving in the church until this guy came on the scene and suddenly hope is renewed in the land. People trust their leaders again and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In other words, from the beginning of chapter 3 to the end, something radical has changed. God, who is far from Israel, His word is absent, has returned to His people because one man obeyed His calling and honored the Lord. I believe that God is calling everyone in this room. That there's not a single one of us who doesn't have a plan Resting in God's heart for us. And I want to encourage you to live your life on purpose. There's a reason purpose-driven life is the best-selling hardcover in all of American history. Because deep in our hearts, we know that we're supposed to live for a calling. As you think about your calling, I'm going to encourage you to look back at your story, the one that began even before you were born. And then to open your eyes and discern the world around you. Think about what is all around us. And then finally, when you sense what God has challenged you to do, step out, obey Him, do not delay, do not be afraid. You'll be amazed what God will do in your life. And you'll discover your call. Why don't we bow in prayer? You know, you've heard so many words this morning. But let's pray that the words which God most wants us to keep, He will seal in our hearts. And I want you to just, in a moment of quiet, reflect on what you've heard this morning, how it speaks to your life. And let's just give God our own personalized response. That'll last maybe a minute or two, so let's not daydream, and let's really just give God a response from the heart to what He's just spoken to each of us. And then the praise team will take us into a time of singing. Let's pray.